Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that can do this all day. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Captain America, the first Avenger. Lonnie, we are making MCU history with Captain America. Oh, yeah. There are two big ways that Captain America as a character is different than everybody else who has shown up in the MCU up until now. Okay. First, he is the first Marvel Cinematic Universe character who actually predates the existence of Marvel Comics. Very cool. When did Marvel Comics start? So Marvel Comics itself starts basically somewhere around Amazing Fantasy 15 and Fantastic Four number one, 63, 64, like in that uh -huh. area. All right. Before they were Marvel, they were timely and they did mm -hmm. publish comic books. But you may recall me mentioning horror comics, war comics, westerns, right. romance, all that stuff was way bigger than superheroes for a long time, mm -hmm. or at least they stood shoulder to shoulder, right? Like you could go to the comic book rack and there wasn't just superheroes then. Right. There was all mm -hmm. these options. And when they were timely, during actual World War II, is when that company published Captain America. But they are essentially the same corporate entity, more or less. Mm -hmm. So they own the character and they pull him out of mothballs and insert him into their burgeoning superhero universe. So that's the 60s, but the stories they're telling about Captain America are concurrent with World War II. Is that? No. He was no. okay. fighting in World War II in the comic books that were coming out in World War II. Uh-huh. Now, we'll talk about the hows and whys that he has found because it makes more sense in another movie. Okay. The next episode of this podcast. <laughs> but they just bring him literally out of ice to inject him into their mid-60s world, right? Uh -huh. So he's only been in the ice for, you know, 15 or 20 years in theory. Okay, but that story, him being in the ice and frozen in the ice and then brought back, that's part of this 1960s, like, revival of Captain America? Yes, it's like they okay. just realized, oh, hey, we <laughs> own some of these other characters. And it's not, it's not really surprising because mm -hmm. it's a lot of the same guys. Right. Like, they were working before the war, they went to the war, they came back and started this whole other thing that they weren't sure mm -hmm. was going to work, and it started to work. And then they were like, hey, let's bring some of these other characters in. And I'll tell you about a couple of the other ones because they're kind of they're kind of great and weird yeah. in a way that <laughs> Marvel doesn't do as often. But mm -hmm. the bona fides. Captain America Comics number one comes out in March of 1941. So we are 20 years before the rest of the Marvel Universe. Okay. The second reason that he's very noteworthy is that this is the first character not co-created by Stan Lee to come into the Marvel Cinematic mm -hmm. Universe. Cap's creators are Joe Simon and a name that everybody will be tired of me pointing out, <laughs> Jack Kirby. Yeah. But this is the episode where I get to talk about some of the real world reasons that I love Jack Kirby. So mm -hmm. we'll get to it. Oh, yeah. Now, his origin, Captain America's origin, is definitely fleshed out in the movie, but all of the broad beats that you would expect 
are right there in that very first issue. The scrawny wow. guy who can't go to war, yeah. secret scientific experiment, Nazi saboteur. Now there's no more <laughs> super soldiers. Like all that stuff right there. Wow. Now, here is some really cool stuff. Cap was a massive success for Timely during the war. Mm-hmm. Now, the post-war years were difficult. I mean, in fact, they were kind of crushing to basically mm-hmm. all superhero comics. I talked about that in our origin episode where there's yes. really only three characters that were in constant publication. And that's because mm-hmm. post-war just wrecked superheroes. Mm-hmm. But during the actual war, he was selling a million copies or near enough. Oh, my God. He was at certain points outselling Time magazine. That's amazing. It is amazing. Because comics, I mean, have always, I mean, well, have they always been something of a niche thing? No. Before television, you had pulp magazines and you had comic books. Okay. And pulp magazines were for older mental degenerates. And comic books were for younger mental degenerates. Like that's I'm I am not serious, but that is definitely the way that they were looked at. But those are huge numbers, though. Yes, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's fairly mainstream at that point. It is. Isn't it? it is super mainstream. I mean, I mean, this now the war is not yet going on, but it's you know, or I should say, the war is definitely going on, but we're not in it yet. Right. Right. When Captain America Comics number one hits, which is itself kind of a story that we'll get to in a minute. But right. Because that's March and Pearl Harbor didn't happen until December of 1941. Yeah. Almost Mm -hmm. almost a year later from because the cover dates are a little different from pub dates. Comics are weird, even in real the real world. But (laughs) but nevertheless, yeah, those are huge numbers. I mean, nobody Mm -hmm. but like Superman was doing numbers like that at the time. And Cap was, as far as I understand it, outselling him once the war picked up because here he is, right? Yeah. Um, It also led to the creators, Joe and Jack, Mm -hmm. receiving death threats. Oh, God. Now, that is because on the very first cover, they have Captain America punching Hitler (laughs) an entire year before we are in the war. And while we still have a thriving American Nazi presence oh god yeah i mean they had a training camp in long island Mm -hmm. the nazi sympathizers in america like in long island so it was like we could just take a train over there to these guys that lived and worked in new york well and joe simon and jack kirby were both jewish they are both jewish yeah this Mm -hmm. is a huge deal we're going to talk about this a lot for a lot of reasons it comes Mm -hmm. up a lot with cap yeah. But yeah, you have two Jewish guys who make mm-hmm. this character and it's not an accident that they mm-hmm. that they take an Aryan ideal, wrap him in the American flag and then let him punch Hitler. Right. <laughs> they started to get death threats and the de- death threats were serious enough that they got police protection ordered by Mayor LaGuardia himself. Oh, my God. LaGuardia was apparently a big fan of Captain America. He was a comic book nerd before before that was oh, a thing. Oh, that's awesome. He read the Sunday funnies to uh, like over the radio so kids could keep up with them during paper shortages. Oh, my God. So, you know, he was that guy. He was dialed in on this. And again, it's selling a million copies. Uh-huh. It's selling more than time. Everybody knew about Captain America. Yeah, sure. And they were uh, Joe and Jack receiving. I talk about them like they're my friends because at this point, my God. But, yeah. Um, and in fact, I have I'm going to quote Jack Kirby here on an actual uh, him in an interview talking about this time. 
He said, I had Nazis calling me at the timely office. I once had six Nazis call me up. They said, well, we're waiting for you downstairs and we're going to beat the daylights out of you for writing the stories about Hitler. These were New York Nazis. They had a camp out on Long Island. And so I said, hold on, guys. I'll be right down. Oh, my God. I love this man. (laughs) Of course, I take the elevator down, but there was nobody there. I looked in the street and, of course, they wouldn't be there. I didn't feel disappointed and I felt disappointed. It didn't matter to me one way or the other. You know, if they wanted to fight, well, what the heck? I would do it. Oh, my God. Now, I have heard this story from the perspective of another bullpen member, and I cannot find the source for this. So I can't cite who it was. But they talk about watching Jack get a phone call. And if you go find a picture of Jack Kirby from the 40s, like he looks like a guy who will curb stomp you. Oh, my God. Um, So this other staffer talks about how he sees Jack get the phone call and he's like, well, I'll be right down then and starts heading for the elevator, rolling up his sleeves. Oh, my God. So, I mean, what a badass. I love this man. Well, I mean, at that point, though, you're talking about an American Nazi party. It's it's like a line from this movie. You start running now. They'll never let you stop. No, absolutely. But I mean, that is badass. <laughs> Kirby just being like, all right, I'll come down and meet you. I mean, that is a ballsy dude. I love it. Yeah, it's for real. He He's yeah. one of my heroes on just a variety so of levels. levels. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he actually went to the war, served in the war, uh-huh. did some Nazi killing things that he didn't like to talk about very much once he was back. Because oh, after sure. he got back, a lot of his comics were about how... We should just stop doing wars, please. Yeah. You know, I mean, I uh, can imagine, but, right? But yeah, at the time, that was the deal. He's like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. If they want to fight, let's do it. You know? Yeah. Um, now, this Jewishness of Captain America, we, I mean, we're going to talk about it in terms of the movie, but I'm telling you, this yeah. is a huge part of his creation. Mm-hmm. Because we're not in the war, and a lot of America's talking like they don't want to be in the war. Mm-hmm. And here you have a lot of Jewish guys working in this industry together in a city where, you know, just over there in this other borough, there's a yeah. Nazi training camp, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and like I said, you have that Aryan ideal wrapped in the flag. Let's sock Hitler in the jaw right away. Yeah. Hitler quickly becomes buffoonish in the Captain America stories. Mm-hmm. And listening to uh, Joe Simon talk about that. He was like, we didn't really set out to do it that way. It was just Mm -hmm. kind of impossible to take him serious. I mean, as a person, seriously, right? Like, clearly, he's a danger to the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But to try and take him seriously as some kind of mastermind was just really difficult for them. And so he becomes just a giant buffoon in these Captain America comics. And Mm -hmm. people didn't care for it. Like, if they they were into Nazis, they didn't care for that. So... Mm -hmm. You see some of this roll into the movie. Uh, Erskine, not, mm-hmm. I don't think he's textually Jewish. It's possible that he is, but he does, you know, we'll talk more about this when we get there, but he does wind up working for the Nazi machine. And, right. Mm-hmm. You know, th- and there's a complicated relationship between uh, the Nazi party and Jewish minds that yeah. I am not qualified to go into. But, mm-hmm. but he's definitely coded differently than he was originally in the comic books. In the comic books, he had a very German name and just seemed to read like a German citizen who saw Hitler test a death ray Mm -hmm. and just was like, well, I think I'll defect because that's messed up. (laughs) Enough of this. Yeah. So now when you get that story retold into the 60s, they kind of retcon that as a code name for Abraham Erskine. And at that point, you're like, 
we we see you, right? Yeah. Like I see what mm-hmm. you're doing. Abraham, not a common name, you mm-hmm. know, or a much more common name in Jewish circles, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So you have a lot of other symbolism in Captain America, though, because this is the way Jack Kirby's mind worked. Sure. Take a look at the comic book costume, which sadly does not make it into the movie as much as you might like after you hear what they were doing with it. It's a little (laughs) silly in a lot of ways, honestly. Mm -hmm. But look at it this way. You have a winged helm. Mm -hmm. You have musketeer gloves and boots. He wears it. A lot of people are confused what it was because sometimes it wasn't always drawn very well. Um, But he wears chain mail. Wow. Underneath the the Captain America shirt. (laughs) That's some serious medieval shit. (laughs) Yes. Notice he also carries a shield. Yeah. He is a modern day knight. Yeah, absolutely. On purpose. But note the lack of a sword. Uh He is like what we wanted to imagine America at the time, right? He is a noble warrior in defense of liberty. He defends. He does not attack. I like it. Yeah, that is coded that is right in there. hugely symbolic. On purpose. Yeah. No sword, but a shield. But yeah, a shield. Yeah, that's massive. Yeah, it's, it's oh, shivers over that stuff. It's that's so good. Very yeah. cool. Oh, Again, almost none of that survives <laughs> into the right, movie. Right, but it's cool. Yeah. But it's really cool when you're dealing with these kind of like uh, uh, four color, you know, much more aimed younger you know stories is just like yeah get it in there make it look somebody's gonna go d'artagnan's gloves you know lancelot <laughs> shield do that sure. right now the shield did see some changes over time initially it was very traditionally shaped like you would mm-hmm. expect a knight's you know sort of kite shield to be shaped. right kind of like the shield that they gave him for the prop during the the Captain America, you know, promoting the bonds thing, right? Exactly. That is okay. the that is the the shield he carried in the comics for a short time. Uh-huh. But another company called MLJ Comics complained that that shield was too similar to the chest emblem of their own slightly predating Captain America patriotic superhero, the shield. Oh god, a shield is a shield. Well, <laughs> they both stole it from medieval shapes, right? I mean, yes and no. Because I could talk about Kirby and his love for dudes that carry shields because he's Mm -hmm. got a couple more characters that do that. Yeah. But so, I mean, you know, I'm sympathetic to the thing. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. And they're already stepping into the shields area with a with a patriotic superhero. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Now, the shield was more like a G-man, like an FBI guy. But still, Uh he wore a flag themed uniform. I could see how it happened. So in issue two, Cap receives his distinctive round shield, and we're all much happier about it anyway. Wow. Yeah, no, the round shield is awesome. Yeah, and it lets it become a thrown projectile, which is actually a Stan Lee edition. He Ooh. added that into a prose piece that was in the back of a Captain America comic. You would also get this kind of short story uh-huh. about Captain America. So Stan Lee was like, um, there's a guy down the hall with a gun. I need to do something about that. <laughs> What do you know? He throws the shield. I mean, I think it would be a minute before yeah. it starts bouncing around and coming back. But, you know, Stan's got his fingers That's in this one, cool. too. Yeah. I also want to talk about Bucky. Uh-huh. In the comics, are you aware that Bucky was typically a kid sidekick? No, I was not aware of that. 100% kid sidekick. He is not a childhood <laughs> friend grown into adulthood. Uh-huh. Now... There has been some retconning of this in more recent times, mm-hmm. but at the time, kid sidekicks 
are huge. They are the biggest thing. Like you weren't anybody if you didn't have a kid sidekick. Like Robin the Boy Wonder, like that kind of thing with Batman, right? Like the sensational character find of 1940, Robin uh-huh. the Boy Wonder. He is the first kid sidekick, and then everybody else is like, that is the best idea since superheroes. Okay, but that wasn't weird because, okay, in our current day context, a full-grown man hanging out with a little kid feels weird and and kind of inappropriate. So, like, was that not, I mean, a context at that time? It was, it was just more innocently <laughs> well that comes up later it does that's right. that subtext sort of comes up later yeah but at the time and i mean even even over time i have no problem with batman and robin he adopted him right okay i mean mm-hmm. i mean they say that like ward his his ward because yeah. a single man could not legally adopt sure, at the sure. time mm-hmm. but i mean that's that's adoption <laughs> i mean yeah that's mm-hmm. the like made up thing that they did so that you know People could take care of kids, mm-hmm. even if they weren't in 100 percent, you know, the uh, the position the law would want them to be. But everything right. else made sense, you know, like, sure. oh, it's a mm-hmm. single man, but he's got a billion. Do- well, I mean, at the time, he was just a millionaire. Right. A little <laughs> bit of time, a creep. That was, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so no, not weird at all. And in fact, an amazing breakthrough in superhero storytelling technology, because the theory is that while all the kids might look up to Batman it's easier for them to imagine themselves as Robin. Right. Or Bucky or some other kid sidekicks we'll talk about because a couple more come up. Oh, sure. So it's kind of like a because the, the vast majority of the audience were these young boys. Were kids. Yeah. It was self-insertion into the fantasy. Exactly. All right. Okay, I get it now. But I mean, I mean after Robin, mm-hmm. if you didn't have a kid sidekick, you were nothing. Green Arrow gets one that is just basically Robin Redux. Uh-huh. Um, we're uh, we're going to talk about one of Captain America's World War II uh, compatriots who also had a kid sidekick in a way that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, it, it was all over the place. Um, um, one guy, like the the Sandman, all of a sudden got uh, Sandy the Golden Boy. I mean, everybody uh-huh. gets kid sidekicks. Okay, interesting. Now yeah. I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know about every other kid sidekick. They're not all created equal, but Robin mm-hmm. is one of the top five best ideas in comics. Logic of wars on crime and World War II battlefields be damned. Yeah. And I shortly will be going on at length about mm-hmm. how amazing Robin as a concept is and some of the specific Robins are on an upcoming superhero university about Batman. So oh my God, if yeah. that is at all interesting to people... <laughs> Go look for Superhero University and get ready to read some of the best Batman stories that have ever been. And I will talk about how amazing an idea. I mean, the yeah. joke, I don't think it's a joke, but I use the phrase all the time because it was on the cover of Robin's first appearance, the sensational character find of 1940. Mm-hmm. I believe that still. <laughs> now, we will talk more about Bucky and his retcons when we get to Captain America Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. That is where that makes sense. Okay. All right. Great. But... Speaking of allies and their kid sidekicks, <laughs> yeah, Cap and Bucky actually fought alongside other superpowered people during World War II. Wow. They were in a team called the Invaders. 
Mm-hmm. The two main allies in that team were Namor the Submariner, erstwhile Prince of Atlantis, kicked out mm-hmm. of Atlantis because he thought Nazis were bad. Oh, my God. Well, you can't have an unpopular opinion in Atlantis, I guess. Well, they don't. They were mostly just like, that's a surface dweller problem, not ours. Right, right, right. So, mm-hmm. you know. And the Human Torch, uh-huh. who is completely misnamed because he's actually a robot who okay. bursts into flame. An android, really, but still. Uh, yeah, he's a robot, an android created by Dr. Phineas Horton, and he could cause himself to burst into flame. He is totally different than the Human Torch in the Fantastic Four. Okay. But you might remember what I said about Marvel doing re- reiterations of characters on the fly. Sure. I mean, it had been 20 years. Nobody remembered this guy. Right. And we have another guy on fire. <laughs> you know? Now, he had a kid sidekick, the android that could burst into flame. Yeah. Had a kid sidekick named Toro who also burst into flame, and it makes no oh. sense whatsoever. <laughs> Wait, but that was a human kid. Yes. Who could burst into flame. <laughs> no. Toro is not a robot. He is the mutant son of nuclear scientists <laughs> who could also burst into flame in the most inexplicable pair-up either. What if they didn't get along? I know. It's so, I mean, it's not like they instantly have anything in common, like the aforementioned Batman and Robin. (laughs) One of them's not even human. It's weird. That is weird. But you see what I mean about kid sidekicks? It was like, should we give the robot a sidekick? Yeah, F it. Go ahead. Sure. Go give him a kid who can burst into flames. Couldn't hurt. (laughs) Now, you get a nod to this in the movie, though. Uh Uh-huh. At the expo that Bucky and Steve visit, there is a big display that says Phineas Horton's Synthetic Man. Oh, my God. Really? Yes. I didn't even. Of course, I wouldn't notice no, that. No, why would you amazing. notice? It's, that is gonna... such a great Easter egg. That is a, like, deep cut Easter egg. I got to tell you, in 2011, when I'm sitting in the theater, I was like, oh, my God, <gasps> for real? Are they going to do that? They didn't do that. It. They didn't do it. Oh, my God. That's awesome. But it's, yeah, it was really cool to see that. And it made me, it has led to a little bit of headcanon for myself where I can just assume that Cap and uh, Human Torch and Submariner had adventures that just didn't make it into this movie. Right. That just weren't there. (laughs) Because look, I mean, he built the robot. It's right there. Right. There it is. I keep saying robot because it entertains me. He's really an android. He looks pretty human when he's not on fire. Okay. Without without getting too sidetracked, though, can I ask you what the difference is between an android and a robot? Well, like an android looks like a person. Oh, okay. All I mean, right. more or less, right? Like, okay. you know, um, you could, you could, even if you get pretty close, uh, I think C-3PO, for instance, still counts as an android. Okay. Because but he's... C-3PO, though, is obviously a robot. Right. But I mean, you know, uh, your, your Cylons and whatnot, more uh-huh. androids. Robot would okay. be like your Robbie the Robots, your Danger Will Robinsons, your things that are building cars right now. So androids are when you get close... When you get close to the uncanny valley and cross it, you're in android territory. Sure. Okay. Considering that I think the entire concept of a robot that bursts into flame called the human torch (laughs) is (laughs) off-putting. I'm fine with that definition. I think that's a whole other discussion. (laughs) I don't. I mean, it's a cool name, but it's like, maybe don't make him a damn robot. Right. And and what do you know? 20 years later, they were like, we're going to call a teenager the human torch because by gum. 
That's a good name. Yeah, we need a human that bursts into flames. That's what we need. <laughs> yeah, clearly. And a rock guy and a stretchy guy and a woman that turns invisible. I won't even talk to you about Ghost Rider. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> oh, you definitely do not want me. I will go to the mattresses over the Ghost Rider movies, but for the weirdest reasons. Oh, my God. Well, Ghost Rider and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., though. Okay, that's obviously a discussion we're going to have at a much later date. So let's put that aside well, for now. put a pin in Ghost Rider. Patrons? Yes. Find your friends, raise enough money, and I will make Lonnie watch the Ghost Rider movies and talk about Oh, I will totally watch the Ghost Rider movies. I have a recording of me in an episode of Will Write for Wine from like 10 years ago where I was making fun of my co-host, C.J. Barry, because she watched the Ghost Rider movie. (laughs) And she was like, his head bursts into flames. And I was like, his head bursts into flames? It was a whole thing. Listen. I don't know how you make a living 80s metal cover less interesting than Nick Cage just being weird. Yeah. But that happened. I love the movie that Nick Cage thinks he's in. But again, Uh. putting a pin in it. All right. We'll set that aside for later. That'll be a a Patreon exclusive if we get enough support. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's fascinating. All right. So let's let's focus back on Cap. I'm I'm coming in here. Keep going. This is good stuff. Peggy Carter. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I love Peggy Carter. I also love Peggy Carter. Great. She is almost a case study in taking the dribs and drabs of diverse representation and mining them from old comics and then doing something awesome with them. That's great. Because she's almost a cipher in the Captain America stories that she's in. Mm -hmm. Like to the point where there is some argument over whether her first appearance was in Tales of Suspense number 77, May 1966. It wasn't. It wasn't. They're literally seeing a blonde British agent codenamed Agent Zero and going, oh, it must be Peggy. Oh, God. Because she had been in these other comics, not very interesting, but people wanted her. You know, they're reading in. They're like, well, there are no ladies. Let's get excited about this lady Uh and give her a bigger part, which made it into the movie. Yeah. But Peggy in the comics is basically a love interest. She has just enough, like, competency and agency and skills to mm-hmm. make it plausible for her to meet Captain America on the battlefields of World War II. Okay. Movie Peggy, massive improvement on every level. <laughs> the Peggy we need and the Peggy we deserve. Yes. Mm-hmm. Our villain of this piece, the mm-hmm. Red Skull, first appeared in Captain America number three, but he was actually a throwaway fifth columnist. He was not the version that we would get. Four issues uh-huh. later, because they realized they had wasted this really awesome visual and name. Right. <laughs> and that version of the Red Skull is the most evil version of Pygmalion ever. Mm-hmm. Hitler, angry at one of his underlings, swore that he would make the next person who walked through the door of his hotel room into the ultimate Nazi. Oh, my God. The bellhop, Johann Schmidt comes in, and after intense training directly under Hitler himself, Schmidt was given a distinctive uniform and this hideous Red Skull mask and sent out to be the scary battlefield face of the Nazis while Hitler stayed home and was lovable and cuddly, according to the definitions of Nazis. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, eventually, Schmidt gets injured to the point that his face actually looks like a Red Skull. Uh-huh. And even later than that, his mind was transferred out of his aging body and into a clone of Steve Rogers so that he would also have a super soldier's body, uh-huh. which is where that bit kind of gets into the movie. Okay. Now, even later than that, it got really weird, and we're not talking about it. 
Okay. <laughs> because it is a hell of a rabbit trail, and maybe I'll talk about it some in Winter Soldier because it's tied into that stuff, but it okay. is just like, what? Okay, sure. Wow. Couple more mentions from the comics that are worth bringing up and then putting right. to bed. Arnim mm-hmm. Zola, mm-hmm. the Skull's right-hand man. I'm not forgetting about him, but we're not going to talk about him very much. Okay. Because most of his weirdest, best comic book stuff is when he is a human mind in a robot body with a TV in his gut for a face. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so I'm going to save him and talk about him more when he makes sense with Winter Soldier. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So just, I love him. They cast it great. And Arnim Zola is another Jack Kirby creation, and he's just the weirdest, like, what is even happening? But I'm going to save yeah, right. it for Winter Soldier. <laughs> okay, I'm looking forward to that. Lastly, and the we've mentioned these guys before, Yeah, the Howling Commandos. Mm-hmm. So remember, the coolest version of Nick Fury fought in World War II as a sergeant with a bunch of losers and weirdos, and they were the Howling Commandos. <laughs> right. I mean, I say it like that because they really were like the poor man Sergeant Rock. Uh-huh. Sergeant Rock and Easy Company were in DC owned and they were a huge wartime success and actually mm-hmm. survived the war, which is more than mm-hmm. we can say for Nick and the Commandos. <laughs> well, I mean, survived the war in publishing. Right. Anyway, mm-hmm. the Howling Commandos wind up in the first Avenger minus Nick. Mm-hmm. Now, I found their unexpected multiculturalism a welcome addition because nothing makes me laugh harder in this movie than I'm from Fresno, Ace. Yes. <laughs> And let's be honest, Dugan's mustache is a damn delight. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and we can talk about this more when we get to more about the movie stuff, I kind of think that overall they detract from Cap and Bucky. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I like, if they had to be there, they did the best job they possibly could with them. But if I had to right. do it all over again, I'd probably go minus Howling Commandos in this mm-hmm. movie. But yeah. one upshot of having different versions of Nick Fury, we didn't have to watch Sam Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones try to out-badass one another. Right. <laughs> because if we're going to get that, that needs to be the whole movie. Like, who's this Captain America kid? No, Let's seriously. Let's watch these two guys argue. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> that would be the best ever. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, oh especially if uh, Tommy Lee Jones is like the commanding officer of this sergeant and his oh yeah ragtag group of weirdos i mean yeah it's uh yeah it's uh man i'm loving i'm loving that idea anyway (laughs) idea is pretty fantastic so that's all the weirdness that was going on with captain america during world war ii like i said he does eventually get inserted into the marvel universe proper but that makes Mm -hmm. a lot more sense for our next episode so please tell us a little bit about the production history of captain america the first avenger Oh, you bet. Okay, Captain America, the first Avenger was released to movie theaters on July 22nd, 2011, about 10 weeks or so after Thor came out. So we have a little context for how these movies were kind of coming out together. Uh, The budget was 140 million. So it was like right around, you know, Iron Man, everything else had about that that place, you know, give or take a, a 10 or 20 million, depending on the movie that you're talking about. The total take for Captain America America, the first Avenger was 370.6 million. So the profit was 230 million. It is the second worst performing MCU film after The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and arguably, like, I think, honestly, I'm coming down as the best MCU movie to date. I agree. All right? But Thor, okay, Thor 
pulled in more profit than Captain America. Like, I find that just incomprehensible. I have I'm, no I'm idea mystified. how that happened. I want to go look up home video sales and try and balance the no, scale. No, you add, but... this is, okay, this is box office. This is worldwide, you know, while it was in the actual the actual movie theaters so that's different from worldwide returns and rentals and dvd sales and all that kind of stuff that's a different thing but this is just basic box office response um which i find uh, incomprehensible Uh, but it's flabbergasting (laughs) I'm, i'm ashamed of you all Yes, no, absolutely. But the critical response, though, was actually really good. Captain America, the first Avenger, has a Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 80%, which is really pretty good, you know? And so that's, that's like, very respectable. The highest rated MCU movie uh, so far is Iron Man with 94%. We've mentioned <laughs> the amount of chutzpah that Iron Man is getting by oh, on, yeah. so... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's got. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it. Like, I my rankings would probably be different, um, but the lowest MCU movie so far is Thor: The Dark World with 66. Okay. percent I didn't think the Dark World was worse than actual Thor, but you know what? We'll get to that. We're going to talk about that later. This is a long podcast. There's lots of life left in it, so we're going to have that discussion another time. We won't the argue as much Hulk, during that one, Lonnie. Right? No. <laughs> The Incredible Hulk came in at 67%, which just goes to show you that some critics do not know what they're talking about. Because The Incredible Hulk, as we have discussed, actually a really legit good film. I kind of wonder if Iron Man left them expecting something different. Oh, it could be. I mean, I don't I don't know. I'm basically just inventing scenarios to explain these wild numbers. It is it is incredibly wild, but also like at that point expectations have a lot to do with how you receive a film. I mean, even for critics, even for professionals, you know, it happens to everybody. And I think that you come in with Iron Man, which is all like, you know, ACDC and it's rock and roll. And then you come into The Incredible Hulk, which has like a much deeper emotional, you know, story behind it. And it's, it's really, really good. But I can see how expectation could feed into that kind of getting like a less you know enthusiastic response um than iron man but i gotta say i think that if you you know you go back and you look at them like the incredible hulk has some really really good things to recommend it um but just for broader mcu comparison the highest rotten tomatoes score in all of the mcu this is tv and movies is marvel's agents of shield which i'm just gonna say (laughs) is my thing. I love Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We are going to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in some form eventually. Um, But that comes in at 95%, just a a point higher than Iron Man. And the lowest is The Inhumans, the recent uh, (laughs) TV show, which comes in at... God, just just a heartbreaking 10%. Now, I haven't seen The Inhumans. I haven't watched it because I I heard bad things and I just didn't want to deal with it. Um, But that is... Followed closely by Iron Fist at 19%. And I have to say, what I've heard about Iron Fist has been even more dire than the Inhumans. So I find that really interesting. Those are going to be tough watches when we get to them. 
We will we will deal with them in a way that is appropriate <laughs> without making everybody suffer too much in that process. Oh, oh, with our, our listeners. <laughs> Most of all us. <laughs> I thought you were just talking about us. That's why I no, suggested drunk. I am also but, talking yeah. about us. Absolutely. Um, so when we say that we're not doing a review of every episode of every MCU television show, like there's a good reason for that. That's us looking out for you guys. That's us looking out for ourselves. We're going to use these on a case by case basis you know to talk about the shows and to get us moving forward through the mcu because there's so much great stuff to talk about that we don't want to spend a lot of time on things that maybe are not quite so great but we will you know we'll we'll update you guys as we get there with our plans for whatever the mcu tv shows are but overall rotten tomatoes that kind of gives us like a span for where the mcu <laughs> falls yeah. and rises yeah. along that along that scale um the best sign as i've talked about before right that we can look for in the production history of a film is the number of writers right so for captain america the first avenger we have four but this is all good news. Two writing credits go to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, of course, have we talked about, who originated Cap mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. comics. So they don't count against the total for the movie. And the other two are writing teams. So they count as one writer. It's Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. And McFeely and Marcus, you know, who were obviously born to work together because the alliteration in their names is some serious varsity level destiny, as far as I'm (laughs) concerned, um, have become something of a Marvel dream team since the first Captain America, the one that we're talking about today. They have gone on to write both subsequent Captain America movies, The Winter Soldier and Civil War. They wrote Thor, The Dark World, which was better than the first Thor movie. Not that that's a high bar, but still. Um, They wrote the upcoming Avengers. Infinity War movie set for release in May of this year, 2018. And they're slated for the next Avengers movie after that. So these are kind of our, as much as anybody is, our go-to Marvel movie writers ever since Captain America, the first Avenger. Thank God. Yeah. No, they're good. They're really good. I mean, because the stuff that they've done so far has been, you know, like some of the best stuff that the Marvel Universe, Marvel Cinematic Universe has seen. I I agree completely, Mm -hmm. especially because I'm eyeing your next bullet point. Absolutely. They were also showrunner creators for the Agent Carter TV series. And there are always rumblings about it coming back on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. So if any of you out there have any pull with the powers that be at the streaming services or the mystical forces, I will take any. Please use it to bring back Agent Carter because that was a fantastic show. I absolutely loved it on a million different levels. I can't wait until we talk about it, but I want it to come back. I agree. I yeah. I miss it. Like I forget that Agent Carter existed for a minute mm-hmm. and then it comes back and I get really I happy know. and I get really sad. I know, it's the same thing. You're like, oh my God, it's so good. Oh my God, it got canceled. It got canceled way too soon. Such, such a great TV show. So if you guys haven't seen it yet, go out and watch Agent Carter because it is absolutely worth your time. And I still have hope. I still have hope that it'll come back. They are throwing away a treasure in Haley Atwell if they don't bring it back. So No, they have to do something with that because she is fantastic. And there are two seasons out there. Absolutely watch them. But today we're talking about Captain America, the first Avenger, which was directed by Joe Johnston, who directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which is something 
I remember from my childhood. So that's been quite a while. <laughs> right. Also did Jumanji and Jurassic Part 3, but also did The Rocketeer, which is a movie that I have never seen, but I've heard so much good stuff about. Now, you've seen The Rocketeer, right? Oh, like a hundred million times. Right. It's supposed to be fantastic, it's right? It's really good. It's really good. I have really never good. seen it. I have never seen it. Maybe we'll do a Patreon exclusive. You would be very happy watching All The right. Rocketeer, I think. And All it's right. it's real two-fisted pulp goodness. It doesn't quite edge from Mystery Man into superhero yet. And mm-hmm. he's also punching Nazis. And it's- Oh, there you go. It's delightful. It's all right. Yes, yes. Put a pin in that. All right, all right. I look, I look forward to having that discussion. We'll, we'll see what we can do about that. But I've heard a lot about the Rocketeer. Have never seen it. I think it would be a really interesting live tweet or something like that. We'll pull something together for that. Great comics, also, which is yes. not always something we can say about the source material, but right. also really great comics. <laughs> All right, so Joe Johnston, the director of this movie, like many other Marvel movie directors, did not return to do another one. I am beginning to get the impression that the Marvel suits are driving off directors. I mean, we will certainly revisit this phenomenon as we go through the various phases of the MCU, but I'm finding it an interesting and not necessarily, um, you know, nice forecasting uh, trend so far. Yeah, they need to make friends and keep them. Yeah. If they I think chase it's... the Russo brothers off, we're going to have issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe they're learning. They they drove off a lot of good writers. As we know, John Favreau did Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, did not come back for Iron Man 3. Um, Louis Leterrier from, I, or from The Incredible Hulk did not come back after that. Um, a lot of people have had complaints about the way that the Marvel, you know, business end would kind of interfere with this creative so I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's it's kind of not not a great trend so far. Like That's don't okay. don't chase off the Russos or Taiko Watiti. Oh right. No, he's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's another person we're definitely going to want to discuss. He does some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff, too, and it's very, very good. All right, so Marvel started development on this story, Captain America, the First Avenger, in 1997, but was held up by a copyright dispute with Joe Simon. The lawsuit was settled in September of 2003, and a number of writers did passes on it before Johnston was hired to direct in 2008. And he brought Marcus and McFeely on to write the final screenplay. So wanting to bring Captain America to you know the big screen started before the MCU was even like a twinkle in anybody's eye it was just Marvel another Marvel movie but it just happened that by the time they finally got out of that lawsuit um, the timing was right for this MCU movement that is fantastic that's another reason to be appreciative of Joe Simon and I think if I remember correctly he and his family actually came out of that lawsuit better than they went into it all right good so yeah heads up these giant companies that own a bunch of ip aren't exactly super ethical yeah and they weren't 50 or 60 years ago either so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so i yeah but so hey thanks joe you got a little more stake in the game and we got Captain America. And you also made sure that it was timed properly. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he didn't intend for that to happen. But because of that dispute, I think the timing of it was just perfect. Happy for this, accident. This 
moment, right? This moment in the MCU. So I'm, I'm very grateful to Joe, for, to Joe Simon for holding that up. And, you know, getting us Marcus and McFeely and just the right people at the right time doing this story because there's a lot of good stuff in this story. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that in competition for the role of Cap, and this is something you have to kind of like just wrap your mind around, were Ryan Philippe, right? Uh-huh. And John Krasinski from The Office. And I got to say... I would have loved John Krasinski. I love Chris Evans in this role. I think Chris Evans is fantastic. But I have a soft spot in my heart for John Krasinski. <laughs> I think he's I becoming the buff action star now, too. Yeah, he's kind of moving into that. He was he was very much kind of like your beta hero guy for a really long time, you know, after playing Jim on The Office. and uh, But now he's he's getting buff. He's getting into this kind of superhero space. And so I'm hoping that, that somehow the MCU will have a place for him eventually. Now, I lived through Nicolas Cage almost being Superman. Right. <laughs> so none of this shocks me. Right. At the same time, it mystifies. So Yes. Yes, I, I can say that Chris Evans as Captain America is absolutely perfect for it. He's so good in this role, and I absolutely love him in it. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And he also is kind of Captain America in real life, sort of. So Yeah, no, he really is. That's he's, he's pretty, pretty great. fantastic, yeah. Um, legend has it that Joss Whedon, who would come in to write The Avengers, which we'll be talking about next week, um, did an uncredited run through this script as part of his negotiations to do The Avengers. So I don't know, like, you know, obviously anybody who's familiar with me or my work knows that I study Joss Whedon at a very, very deep level. Um, I'm not sure that I saw or, like, you know, really consciously picked up on a lot of Joss Whedon influence in this script because mm-hmm. there are certain things that are very Joss Whedon-y. But, you know, I think the next time that I go through and watch Captain America, the first Avenger, I'm going to be on the lookout for that to see if there's any Joss Whedon stuff in there that I might have missed. Um, but uh, but I, I can I can definitely see how he would have, you know, maybe gone through the script and taken a look at it as part of his, his you know, workup for the Avengers. Maybe he just wanted to make sure that there actually was a script. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe because there have been a two Iron Mans with no script and Thor looks exactly. like it doesn't have one. <laughs> Thor really seemed like it didn't have a script <laughs> at all. <laughs> Do you have a script? Right. We have a vague idea. Right. Exactly. We have sort of an idea. We're just going to go out and shoot it. John Favreau's directing. He'll he'll pull it off. It'll it be fine. last time. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's really interesting, too, about this movie is, of course, the transformation of Captain America. And to get the skinny pre-serum Steve Rogers, they actually had to shoot every shot four times. Once, like normal, with all the actors doing all the roles. One with just Chris Evans in front of a green screen. One with all the actors, except for Evans, who would be inserted later. And once with a body double mimicking Evans' actions. So the, the you know little short skinny guy who would basically play whatever Evans did in the original shot. That is so complex. And that is the first you know act of this movie. I mean, it's it's incredible what they did. But it lands so well. It I mean, does. not just it's on a so technical effective. level. Yeah. But you just feel for this guy the whole time. Yeah. And and then he just sort of like grows up into the guy he always should have been. It's mm-hmm. I can't imagine them doing it any other way. No, I mean, it was brilliant. The way that they pulled it off and the special effects that they did to make. I mean, he really felt like he was that tiny and small. 
you know? And then when you see him come out as Captain America, it's such a wonderful transformation. But all of those scenes beforehand were done four times. That's amazing. And that is that is an incredible attention to detail. I respect the hell out of that. Joe Johnston, I got to say, has tons of respect. This movie is directed beautifully. That is true on a variety of levels, but especially oh, yeah. just having to nail the intricacies of that. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. It's crazy. All right. So let's talk about the movie itself. Um all right, there's so much, so much to talk about in this movie. Where do you want to start? The easy stuff? The easy stuff. All right, and then we'll move into the the more difficult, heavier stuff. All yes, right. I think so. Well, let's talk a little bit about the structure of this movie. I mean, as a narrative nerd, right? You know, yeah. this is one of the first things that I that I noticed about this movie is that it almost has a serial structure. Like a traditional, you know, movie, you know, modern movie is this kind of um, three act story, right? We've got the first act where we're building up the conflict, the second act where we're escalating the conflict and the third act where we're resolving the conflict, you know, and that's kind of like how most movies are done at this point. One of the things that I noticed when I watched this movie is that we actually have almost a serialized structure, very similar to how the comic books would work. You know, we open up with this this first story, this, you know, army or bust, right? You know, Steve Rogers is this skinny kid from Brooklyn. He's determined to get into the army. He goes through this whole thing. He finally, you know, comes up against Erskine at the end and Erskine gets him in, gets him a 1A status, right? Which where he'd been getting 4F, you know, all along. Um, and gets him into the army. And so that's kind of cool. But we also have um, this interesting evolution of his shield throughout all of these steps. Like in this first part, this army or bust, we have this moment, he's at a movie, right? Some guy's being a jerk. Hey, just start the cartoon. Hey, you want to shut up? Together with allied forces, we'll face any threat, no matter the size. <clears throat> Just don't know when to give up, do you? I'm gonna do this all day. He stands up to the jerk, who's easily twice his size, <laughs> goes out into an alley, gets the piss bit at, beat out of him by this guy, right? And he picks up a garbage can shield, you know, and uses it, and it does absolutely no good. And one of the things that I love are these like elements that kind of keep going throughout these serialized bits. Like mm -hmm. in the second act, we have this transformation, right? You know, he goes through boot camp, he becomes the super soldier, he goes through that whole thing. We have this guy from, you know, Hydra, who is trying to steal the uh, the super soldier serum. And, um, and then Captain America in his new body, right? You know, Steve Rogers with no idea how to handle his own new physicality, which is so beautifully realized, you know, in this movie goes chasing out after him. There is, you know, he grabs onto the cab. The guy's in, he ends up, the cab crashes. He pulls the door off of the cab and the cab door, you know, he's, this guy is shooting at him and he uses the cab door as a shield. And the cab door has that little star in the center, you know, like the, the future. Yeah. 
Oh my God. It's so, so he has that garbage can lid shield that does him no good in the beginning, right? In the second part in his transformation, he uses this cab door effectively and it has that star on it. You know, it's so beautifully done, right? Um, then we move into the star spangled man with a plan, right? They won't let him go <laughs> on the front lines because he's an, he's a science experiment. They have no idea, you know, what's going to happen with him. He ends up with that shield, that almost medieval shaped shield, mm-hmm. right? The one that you were talking about. Um, and so he's, you know, going out and he's doing all of this stuff. Um, and he uses that shield, you know, when he goes out into, he's in Italy, he's with the 107th, they've lost a whole bunch of their people, a whole bunch of their people are in the POW camp. It ends up that he discovers that Bucky is in that, you know, has been lost in action, basically. Um, and then he takes this shield that he's been reading his lines off of all this time while raising money, you know, for, for the war effort, um, and actually takes that shield and uses it fairly effectively while he's rescuing these people from a POW camp. And I'm looking at the shield and I'm thinking, isn't that shield made out of the prop shield? Isn't it made out of like cardboard or whatever? Like how is this, you know, effectively protecting him? But he oh, manages to Don't think to too hard about anyway. metal drives during try the not war. To think, yeah, try not to think too hard <laughs> about it. Um, but he takes the, the prop shield, you know, this fake shield on this rogue mission and uses it effectively and he saves the POWs and he saves Bucky, you know? And then we get his super soldier, you know, reality. He's got the vibranium shield. He's got the howling commandos. He's going after Red Skull. It is this full of evolution of Captain America into his heroic self as he takes down Hydra. And the shield slices, it dices, it julienne's fries. I mean, this shield does everything, you know? Um, and the thing that's that's interesting about this is that unlike most movie structures, which is one story that you tell in kind of one leap, this actually kind of presents itself as an episodic structure that we've got this serial you know and this is what happens and uh, comic books i think were the first kind of you know really big mass market you know storytelling medium to do this but we see this now commonly in television shows now where you have a tv series that has a season right and the season has a story to it and each of the episodes contributes in a serial fashion to that story um you know comic books were one of the first places to kind of figure that out where you have these you know serialized stories that kind of contribute to this overall arc and that's how the structure feels in Captain America it is kind of a whisper back to that original idea that original concept of these you know five you know eight whatever issues that would create an arc you know so as somebody who knows the comics like did you see that in Captain America I I love that you're seeing the comic books in it. It it reminded me more of like the uh, the serials that would have been on before the main movies at the time. Oh sure, yeah. You know, because those would be very cliffhangery to get you right. to come back to see mm-hmm. them, and then you know the movie. Uh, it just it felt a little more like that. Maybe that was because they had scenes of him literally shooting some of those serials. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. That it was just on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I own DVDs of like the Green Hornet serials from that time and the Batman serials from that time. And like that's in the back of my mind. But do you, you know. think that those call back to those comic book sources? 
Because that serial thing, that, that idea of taking these, you know, issues of this comic book that then create this greater arc, like that was, how early did that show up in the comic books? So the idea of comic books that are individual pieces that also contribute to a bigger arc is, mm -hmm. is honestly like a mid-60s Marvel invention. Okay. Yeah. So that wasn't in the early, like the timely comics weren't doing that. No, they were very much like a one and done stories because there was no guaranteed way to get the next issue. So oh, okay. you, you didn't want to upset your clientele, right? And sure. so you have decades of stories on the other side of the fence with mm -hmm. uh, with DC heroes where everything's done in eight, 10, 20 pages mm -hmm. because you didn't know where that dime was going to come from next month. However, comic strips would definitely, like in the newspaper... Oh, okay. Would definitely right. have contributed to this because some of the earliest serials are like uh, uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, which started out as comic strips. Right. And in so, a comic strip, though, you only have a few panels, right? That's right. To you've got that to that do them every day. You have okay. to get them every day. And I have seen like a big collection of uh, of early Flash Gordon comics and what mm -hmm. they were able to do in these tiny bites. It's it's amazing. It would have mm -hmm. made me nuts yeah. to, mm -hmm. to be that guy every day waiting for the next installment. But they do an amazing piece of work there. But you're seeing you've got pulp magazines that would mm -hmm. do um, multi-piece stories to try and get you to come back and actually buy the next issue. And those were a little easier to come by than comics. They were a little mm -hmm. more guaranteed at the time. Mm -hmm. you, so you've got that like feeding into comic strips, feeding into serials, feeding into comic books. And, and it just becomes this hodgepodge where, of course, this is the story style that comes out. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I think it's actually kind of hitting multiple nod backs, you know. Mm -hmm. So and... I get to put my story nerd hat on for a second. <laughs> this is not my job on this show, but it is my job during the day. And yeah. <laughs> but what I really love about this, when you break it up like this into smaller chunks that have their own beginning, middle, and end to some extent. Right. Uh -huh. You don't fall into the trap of having to either contrive a reason for your antagonist and your pro protagonist sure. to stand in such tight opposition. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Red Skull is out there. Right. Even before Steve knows about Project Rebirth, mm -hmm. we see him, yeah. you know, even before that. Mm -hmm. But we don't need, we can know that he's out there and not have to worry about when Steve's going to find him a personal threat or whatever. Right. You know? mm -hmm. So either you don't have to contrive that or you don't have to just drop the ball entirely like they did in Iron Man. Right. <laughs> you know, you can just break it up into these more manageable Sure, and I that think that's why it functions narrative. so well because the the Red Skull is not a personal narrative for for Cap until we get to where he rescues Bucky from the POW camp. I mean, that's well, you know, more than halfway into the film. But we've got this origin story, you know, and and we've got this, you know, the the even the pre origin story, you know, before he even transforms of this guy who is so determined you know, to be part of this fight. And I think it functions because we're kind of taking this serialized, you know, aspect to it. Like he's got this almost internal conflict. It's him mm -hmm. against his body. You know, it's yeah. him against reality that he just will not quit, which I absolutely love about him. You really going to do this again? Well, it's a fair. I'm going to try my luck. As who, Steve from Ohio? They'll catch you. Of course, they'll actually take you. 
Look, I know you don't think I can do this. But this I isn't a back alley, Steve. It's war. I know it's a war. You why, have to why are you so keen to fight? Me. There's so many important jobs. What do you want me to do? Collect scrap metal yes. in my little red wagon? Not? I'm not going to sit in the factory, Bucky. Bucky, come on. There are men laying down their lives. I got no right to do any less than them. That's what you don't understand. This isn't about me. Right. Because you got nothing to prove. Um, but, I mean, when we're talking about the structure of this movie, though, I don't think that we can forget that we start with not one, but two prologues. <laughs> yeah, I definitely hate one of them. Yes. And I have mixed feelings about the I like the other one, but I'm also like, why is this here? Why do we have this? Exactly. I could have opened up on Steve Rogers trying to get into the army and been perfectly happy. We open with the, you know, the pre-prologue, which is, you know, the modern day discovery of of Cap's, you know, um, existence in the in the ice, you know. Um, and then we have prologue number two, you know, 1942, Tonsberg, Germany, where the Red Skull discovers the Tesseract. Now, the Tesseract is is important and, and plays a huge role you know of course in in next week's episode of listen up a-holes where we're going to talk about the avengers <laughs> um but it feels more like like the tesseract what it actually is what it actually does doesn't feel as central to this movie so much as it's like oh no that's part of this movie and of course it is a huge part of you know the power source for all the things that Arnon Zola is doing you know um, so I mean we do have a role for it here but it doesn't feel particularly central like understanding mm -hmm. what the Tesseract is is that important so much as it's just this huge source of power yeah it's a weird pull that our mm -hmm. introduction to the Red Skull is him being an evil Indiana Jones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why don't we see him doing something really awful? Or why don't we get some Erskine talking about how he's kind of crazy, only completely serious, and then we get him? I mean, it's it's a weird, cold open mm -hmm. And made even weirder by the fact that it's the second cold open. Right, exactly. And I don't know why that other one exists. It's nonsense. We don't need it. When I first saw that movie in the theater, I thought mm -hmm. that they were doing that because they were going to end the movie with his plane going into the water and they didn't want anyone to worry. Right, right, right. But then when I get to the end, I was like, what? Just, exactly. If you're going to get to something, get to the Red Skull, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know me. I mean, of course, anybody who's familiar with me and my work knows how much I, I generally dislike prologues for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. You know, and well, I think this is a prime example examples of, why. of why. Yeah, because it's it's not about the story that we're telling. You know, tell the story that you're telling. The prologue is just backstory and i mean the first prologue is actually forward story that's epilogue story you know we're, we don't even get to that until 70 years from now <laughs> talk about what's going on now give us what's going on now and you know the discovery of the tesseract like why that was happening prior to giving us our hero you know, we have all of these moments that are kind of cut in, you know, with what the Red Skull is doing at the same time that we're we're dealing with Cap. And we know, of course, that he's going to be the big bad guy, you know, that he's the one that we're going to end up, you know, having this this conflict with. And he is interesting in that he is not a 
not even close to a doppelganger for for Cap at all. He is like a polar opposite of Cap, but they were both given this serum. And when a good man is, as Erskine says, the serum amplifies everything that is inside. So good becomes great, bad becomes worse. This is why you were chosen. Because a strong man who has known power all his life may lose respect for that power. But a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. And so I think that, you know, that the Red Skull as somebody who was the bad side of that, you know, the bad shadow of what what Cap became um, is a really interesting idea. But the Tesseract feels to me like his discovery of the Tesseract, his finding the Tesseract. And of course, he's walking into this, you know, this monastery or whatever it is. And the guy's like, he'll never find it. And in two seconds, he's like, boop, pushes the, you know, the eyeball on the snake and like, you know, finds it. And I'm like, all right, come on. (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can definitely see how they want to make the Tesseract a little more central because they know Avengers is coming. Right, but it's all set up. It doesn't have anything to do... It doesn't... Aside from being a power source, anything to really do with what's going on in this movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I like it in its on its own merits. Like, it's yeah. a fun, you know, whatever it is, 10 minutes of film. And the, yeah, the scene in itself is... is strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But as part of the whole, it's just like, nah, let's go to Brooklyn. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great because and it's not what we're emotionally involved with. I would much Antarctica rather have had no him... Reason. Right. I would much rather have had him looking for the Tesseract to further his research, finding it, you know, at a really pivotal moment. That's something about what brought the POWs and Bucky into it or about him getting the Tesseract and then having him get that power then and be truly even more dangerous than he already is. So I don't know, like to me, I felt like that at the beginning as a prologue was not as effective for this escalation of our antagonist, you know, but now I'll flip this around. I may have thought of something. Okay, what do you got? Well, we mentioned that one of the upshots of the five serialized Mm -hmm. stories Mm -hmm. is that we didn't have to have Red Skull carry weight that he's not built to carry. Right. Mm -hmm. But we also need to know that he exists. Yeah. Because that's the reason that the SRD is doing Project Rebirth and Mm -hmm. all that is in response to Hydra. So we need to know that he's out there Right. And then go into the story. I mean, it's not super elegant, but I can definitely get to a place where it's like, well, we really ought to introduce the guy. And by the way, we have this damn cube, too. Mm -hmm. I think, honestly, like if we had seen him, uh, you know, this is obviously after because Erskine has already done this once. He did this with Johann Schmidt. Mm -hmm. It went wrong. Right. I think we're talking about Captain America. You know, we open up with Steve Rogers, you know, desperately trying like the opening scene in this movie should be him getting that first physical trying to get in. Like We should absolutely open with that. And then I think when it comes to the point where we're talking about the super soldier, where we've got Erskine there. That's when you go to the Red Skull and no, see the dark fair. side of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that also if we had opened the Red Skull being powerless you know, and desperate, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that like he'd gotten this incredible power, but he didn't have anything to do with it in search of this Tesseract that that he is dangerous enough as a single person. But if he's able to. It's a strong escalation. Power, yeah. Right. That it, that the, the, the Tesseract also is so connected with Arnim Zola that without somebody smart, a scientist, you know, pulling the power out of the Tesseract, that he that has absolutely nothing to do with you know red skull as a super soldier i think that if you see this dark side of the super soldier similar to how in the incredible hulk we saw the dark side of that like Mm -hmm. we saw what happened with the abomination you know that we see the darkness of what that kind of power in the wrong hands can do and that because he has that power he's looking for the tesseract to do something for his personal power i mean whether or not he was a super soldier somebody with the tesseract the way that it's represented here with that kind of power would have been able like you know arnim zola could have built those weapons for anybody you know like it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he was a super soldier so i think that like you know first of all the fact that his face melted away and that he's got this red skull and all this kind of stuff shows us like this visual dark side to these experiments and to using humans in the experiments but if it had if the tesseract had been necessary for him to find a greater power mm-hmm. you know a greater personal power as a soldier you know that that i think that we would have seen this kind of mirror image between where the darkness took this guy and where steve's goodness takes him you know and i i would have liked to have seen that maybe on a smaller scale you know, we have yeah. this guy, he's he's so essential to the Nazis, and of course we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I think that if you had had this guy who had been so changed by this and, and so physically deformed by this experience, that the only thing that he can do is is, you know, pursue a personal power that is so much greater, I think that that would have, like driven this home so much better because i love that element you know when erskine says there was a bad man that i gave this to and he became worse Mm -hmm. but a good man will become better like i loved that you know philosophically as as part of this like you know central philosophical kind of heartbeat of this movie i would have loved to have seen that illustrated more in red skull's side of the story you know, to make that there before the grace of God, there before yeah. the grace of your own goodness. There's a real you could have gone. interesting early bit with the Red yeah. Skull just being brutal and awful as a yeah. super soldier. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then. Yeah, I mean, some him... abomination stuff. I think we got this closer to right in The Incredible Hulk than we do here. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, because you're right. The super, the fact that he is a super soldier. At least they seeded it in so that he could be a physical match in the final fight. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that they went to that effort. Right. But it's mm-hmm. not central at all. It's it's not. All the stuff that Arnim Zola is doing, all the stuff that's happening with the Tesseract, any normal man could have been at the head of that. Like, well, it, know, it doesn't have to genius. be the Red Skull. Well, yeah, you know, evil, right? You know, <laughs> but... But the fact that he was the original super soldier, that he was the dark side of this technology, I think could have been played better, you know, for that yeah. that opposing side to what's happening to Steve. And we see Steve throughout, like his goodness is so inviolable 
throughout this story. And the thing is, like, you know, and again, people who've known me for a while know that, like, the gooder than good white hat kind of capital G good guy. Like, I never, never like that character. That character always annoys me. I always hate that character. But Cap, his goodness is so tied in to his own vulnerability and and a genuine part of who he is that it's not about him trying to prove anything or like look at how good I am you know it's just that it's genuinely who he is it's such a genuine part of his character that Cap honestly out of all of the Avengers all of these MCU characters is one of my absolute favorites and to make him that when he's so capital g good you know is is <laughs> That's a quite real, a hill to climb yeah it's it's quite a hill to climb but he's got so much vulnerability he's got so much like real genuine goodness within him you know that that it works for me i mean how do you how do you feel about that 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 gooder than good kind of thing how well, does that work for you i don't have as big an issue with like capital G good guys, but I do recognize the difficulty of figuring out where their vulnerability is. You know, Mm -hmm. I I actually think it's much easier to give us a, like a Wolverine or a Batman. And then you just flip them over and show them the soft underbelly. And you're like, Oh, well there's the vulnerability. Well, they've got that darkness too. Like when you've got that darkness in somebody who wants to do good you've got that instant conflict you've got that instant vulnerability but when you've got somebody who's good at their at their core doing good you know you need to bring that vulnerability in elsewhere i think no i agree i mean that's yeah. that's the trick like that's the uh that's why i introduced you to thor the mighty avenger because he gets his power very early but he is left right. in a very personally vulnerable space yes you know mm-hmm. that yeah, I mean, it's it's a little trickier with very powerful or very good people, but I feel like because it's just a little bit trickier, it doesn't mm-hmm. get done as often. So we think it's even harder than it actually is. Right, exactly. No, it's, it's really interesting to me, though, because, um, you know, if you look at Thor, right, Thor has all this power, you know, but he's not really that interested in being good. You know, um, yeah, no, he's actually a bully at the beginning, right? He really I mean, is, you know, so it's such a, a different thing, you know, with him. And I think that I don't know, like Thor, I'm still working out all my responses to him as a character <laughs> and all that. It's, it's very complicated, but but with Cap, like I'm with Cap from moment one yeah. when he is out there, you know, fighting that bully, and when he says, I don't like bullies, oh my god. But you didn't answer my question. Do you want to kill Nazis? Is this a test? Yes. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. That was an important moment for me. A a, a preview. That's actually my favorite my yeah. favorite moment that we'll talk mm-hmm. about later. And mm-hmm. I will mention why that was such a big deal, especially mm-hmm. with this character to me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, they are able to introduce him in an extremely vulnerable space and he's still good anyway. Yeah. At the beginning. So that when he becomes more powerful, it's like, well, it's not weird. 
Right. It's not a question. He was this guy before. He just couldn't actualize it. And now he can actualize it. Right. It's power in the right hands, which I think has like a really satisfying kind of heartbeat to it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, you see power so often put in the wrong hands, which of course with Red Skull is exactly what we're seeing, you know? Yeah, number and one when with you a see, Right, when you see somebody exercise their power, you know, in a way that is, is positive and genuine to who they are, like I think that that's when it becomes you know, really rewarding for me. Like, that's one of the reasons why superheroes never, like, or Superman has never really appealed to me. You know, because he's so good and he's, you know, got the cleft chin. He's got a little curl of, you know, hair on his forehead. It's just like, it's all too perfect. And I never really saw, and, and you know, Superman, one of these days we're going to have to start talking about DC heroes, but that'll be another discussion for another time. I got a whole um, other podcast for that. Yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be really <laughs> interesting. Um, but for Cap, Cap has that, you know, just so much. I mean, he is so vulnerable for the first, you know, fifth of this movie, you know, the first opening act, there's so it's all vulnerability and no power. And when you see that vulnerability gain power, it's earned, you know, well, it's, it's really we, nicely done. Can we talk about your sacrifice three beat? Because I think yes. that, that two of them are really, really vital to this conversation. Actually. No, they absolutely are. This, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love in narrative is this idea of a three beat because the three beat establishes, you know, reinforces and then subverts, right? So we've got this sacrifice three beat with, with Steve. The first one is, of course, when he's still little Steve. He's still completely vulnerable. <laughs> you know, Tommy little Stevie Lee, Rogers. Little Stevie. <laughs> you know, Tommy Lee Jones throws this grenade into the middle of boot camp. Look at that. He's making me cry. I am looking for qualities beyond the physical. Do you know how long it took to set up this project? Yeah, All the groveling I had to do in front of Senator What's-His-Name's committees. Yes, I know. I am well aware of your efforts. Then throw me a bone. Hodge passed every test we gave him. He's big, he's fast, he obeys orders. He's a soldier. He's a bully. You don't win wars with niceness, doctor. You win wars with guts. Get away! Get back! Is this a test? He's still skinny. It demonstrates who he is, and it's right after this discussion between, you know, um, Phillips and uh, and Erskine about whether Steve is the right you know, the right mm -hmm. person for this Or job. does he even need to be in the running? Yes. Is the question like, you are literally wasting precious resources of feeding this. Exactly. We're mm -hmm. not doing anything for him. We're just giving him mess. Right. And you're wasting my time. And it's like, oh, no, he's actually the best person in there. Which, again, I really like uh, that tension between uh, Phillips and Erskine. Like, yeah, Phillips no. is a soldier. Right. And, he, and Erskine is a philosopher. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder whether he felt that way about his serum before he gave it to Johan. But that's I just can't yeah. help but wonder about it. But, yeah, yeah I, I mean, that's that before he has get, been given anything but a chance and several mm -hmm. beatings. Mm -hmm. Steve is prepared to sacrifice himself for a bunch of jerks. Yeah, no, absolutely. For you but, know, but he's so dedicated to this principle of, you know, going out and doing the right thing, no matter what it costs you. 
and he will throw himself on the grenade no matter what. And we have this again when he's rescuing Bucky, you know, from the POW camp. Got to be a rope or something. Just go. Get out of here. No, no, without you. And of course, in that moment, it's not necessary. They manage to both, you know, he manages to jump across after the the beam has has fallen, um, and and get there anyway. Um, but he's but it's like in the first circumstance it's not real he thinks it's real but it's not in the second circumstance it's real but he manages to to find a way to save both himself and bucky but if it came down to a choice between him and bucky he chose bucky well not for nothing but we're gonna see the steve and bucky don't leave each other behind play out through another couple of movies oh yeah so it's almost like a multi-movie three beat oh yeah that started with the second of the three beats in this movie (laughs) exactly but then we get of course the final sacrifice scenario give me your coordinates i'll find you a safe landing site there's not going to be a safe landing but i can try and force it down Uh, i'll get howard on the line he'll know what to do there's not enough time this thing's moving too fast and it's heading for new york i gotta put her in the water and so he makes that choice at the end which is this heartbreaking God when he's on the radio with Peggy. You're gonna need a rain check on that dance. All right. A week next Saturday at the Stork Club. You got it. Eight o'clock on the dock. Don't you dare be late. Understood? No, I still don't know how to dance. I'll show you how. Just be there. We'll have the band play something slow. I'd hate to step on your... Steve? Steve? Oh my God. It kills me. The other part of that is, Mm -hmm. he's obviously not happy about it. Right. But he's never hesitating. No, he This is what I got to do. And Peggy's like, we'll figure something out. We don't have time to figure something out. And maybe they do, but they probably don't. Right. And if it's New York or me, Steve's going to say me every time. He said me for 12 jerks. And then he said me for Bucky and a bunch of guys he didn't know. Yeah. Of course he's going to. I mean, yeah. It's just he's so emotionally present in that moment and at the mm-hmm. same time is just like we're we're not talking about this this is what's happening of course of it's course. so good yeah and i mean it's so it's so beautifully realized it's so wonderfully done and of course like and we have this is not the only three beat that we're going to talk about in the course of this movie i mean of course we have the dancing three beat i'm just looking mm-hmm. for the right partner which of course has its final beat in this as well you know um it is it's so beautifully done you know and so emotionally powerful um i i love this movie honestly for yes. a million reasons but this you know, that, that evolution. And it's not even evolution of his character. His character is consistent throughout. It's an evolution of what he has the power to do. Yes, that is a fascinating way to shave it. And another reason that I'm surprised you like it so much. (laughs) I I mean, you really like those meaty arcs where they start in one place and they end in a different place. And we had that with 
with Tony Stark, oh, where sure. he is a bad man. Yeah. And then by the end of the movie, he's a bad man trying to be less bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not prepared to give him more than that, Lonnie, just right. so you know. No, uh, not yet. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? And then Thor, uh-huh. it's a little more informed, but he starts out right. definitely prideful mm-hmm. and ends with more humility, I get. I mean, it's not as stark as... It's not quite as good, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it's, but in this case... Steve is Steve, like Steve the whole is time. Who he is, but the evolution is not in who he is at his core, which is what we see in Tony and what we see in Thor. You know that he is learning essential lessons and becoming a better person. It's that he has no power to to be everything that he is to do the things that he wants to do with his goodness. So it is not his essential core that changes and that evolves, but it is the amount of power that he has that evolves. Yes. But the application of that power. Yeah. It just remains constant. I I mean, I don't know how else to say it's, it's not that I'm glad you like it. It's just a little bit of a, I've been listening to you for a minute. Right. (laughs) And it's just a little bit of a surprise because we've still got an evolution who he is. Right. We've still got an evolution though. There's still, it's true. No, no, definitely. It's just a different kind of evolution from what we see with Tony and with Thor. Um, But yeah, no, but I like it. I like it a lot. And I, I have to say, honestly, cap, I'm as surprised as anybody how much I love it. (laughs) How much I love Cap, how much Cap has my heart and soul. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with who he genuinely, like genuinely is. The other reason Mm -hmm. that this movie has your heart and soul. Yes. Is the last easy thing that we can talk about. Yes. And I'm I'm jumping to it because you mentioned the other three B. Right. How, Mm -hmm. I mean, how amazing is Peggy Carter in this movie? Okay. Peggy Carter is phenomenal in this movie. And here is the thing. Peggy Carter, like every, we've talked about women in the MCU. Women in the MCU are absolutely a problem. We're going to have this discussion again, even after Peggy Carter. But (laughs) in this movie, Peggy Carter is hardcore. She is badass. She is not just a love interest which is what all the other women have been. Even Betty Ross, who was as good as we got up until this point, you know? She was Um, an active love interest full of agency, but she was still mostly there to be that emotional conflict for Bruce. Mm -hmm. Peggy's got her own stuff going on. Peggy has got her own shit happening and she is handling it like she is serious serious business i love that she likes and respects steve before he turns Mm -hmm. into you know chris evans captain america you know (laughs) um that she likes him she respects him you know the moment when he gets the flag Right. You know, he outsmarts everybody else into getting the flag and gets the ride home, you know, with Peggy Carter Um, from that all the way through. You know, she likes him and respects him. And, it, you know, in that moment in later on in the movie, when she catches him making out, you know, with the uh, with the. What was her name? Marjorie Targaryen? From- oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Whatever her name is from Game of Thrones. Um, you know, she she catches him doing that. She's like, you're just like all the others. Captain, we're ready for you if you're not otherwise occupied. Agent Carter, wait. Looks like finding a partner wasn't that hard after all. 
Peggy. That's not what you thought it was. I don't think anything, Captain. Not one thing. You always wanted to be a soldier, and now you are, just like all the rest. But what about you and Stark? How do I know you two haven't been fondueing? You still don't know a bloody thing about women. Her disappointment is palpable, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I didn't think you were this guy. Yeah. She thought he was different. And then in that moment, she's like, you're not any different. Of course, you know, he was like, I don't know. She just tripped and started kissing me. And I don't, you know, whatever. Which he poor guy. Helpless, right? Helpless to, you know, whatever. Okay. We had pretty well established in his first conversation with Peggy that he was indeed helpless. Exactly. In front of a forward woman. to women. Exactly. Captain America's kryptonite is a forward woman. I, I don't, you know, I don't begrudge him a smooch <laughs> in the middle of the war. You know, I mean, I know, like, whatever. But, um, but like, this whole thing with, with Peggy and Cap... We have this lovely evolution, you know, and again, like once again, the three beat, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, before the transformation, when they're riding in the car, before he's, you know, about to get made into to cap and they're having that conversation, they talk about dancing, you know, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And women don't want to dance with somebody who's shorter than them, you know, and he says just waiting for the right partner. Right. You know, and then we get waiting for the right partner from Carter, you know, later on when they were talking about dancing. And then, of course, when he's crashing, you know, the the Tesseract and the and the plane yeah, into the sea to save everybody. You know, they're talking about that dance and she's like eight o'clock at the store club, you know, and then we get almost that that epilogue beat. Mm-hmm. It's like a three and a half beat. You're going to be OK. Yeah. Yeah, I just... I had a date. The other thing... I mean, there's so many amazing things about Peggy as a character separate from Captain America, but the way that she impacts this story, I think it's great that she is actually the person who sort of lights the fire of faith in him. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. she is the one who says... Well, she did. there's a way that you could say this where it was like, I thought you were supposed to be more. But right. that's not what she says because she knew him before exactly. long enough to be able to say, you were meant for more than this, right? right. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give you a ride. You know, mm-hmm. it's just because I still think at that point she's not actually romantically interested in him. Right. Yeah. You know, I think at that point she just knows he's a good person who now ought to be able to do something. So she says, do you think you ought to go do it? And and the yeah. fact that he does it is probably when the romantic feelings. I think so. I yeah. mean, I think she just respects the hell out of him. You yeah. know, that she knows that he is truly something special, you know, and she's not taking anybody's bullshit. I mean, Peggy Carter is not there to take <laughs> anybody's crap. Let's not forget that after the smooch, she shot at him. Yes, so, yeah. exactly. What do you think? Yes, I think it works. She is so great, and she is not anybody's love interest. She's not anybody's sidekick, you know? She is a full character in and of herself, the best woman that we have seen written in MCU to date. Yeah. Uh, She's fantastic. Yeah, and I know that there is some better examples of that on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we have some good stuff on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah. But Peggy goes into her own show and literally has people yelling at one another, do as Peggy says. Yes. 
Yes. We have now taken the subtext and made it text. <laughs> exactly. And Peggy in the 1940s, you know, I mean, sexism is real now. But in the 1940s, I mean, God, everything yeah. she had to deal with at that point. Um, and, you know, and one of the things that she, you know, had said to Steve that they kind of bonded over was, I know what it's like to have people treat you like you're less than you are. I know this neighborhood. I got beat up in that alley. And that parking lot. And behind that diner. Did you have something against running away? If you start running, they'll never let you stop. You stand up, you push back. You can't say no forever, right? I know a little of what that's like, to have every door shut in your face. I guess I just don't know why you'd want to join the army if you were a beautiful dame. Or a beautiful a woman, an agent, not a dame. You are beautiful, but... You have no idea how to talk to a woman, do you? I love Peggy Carter. She is the best, best written, you know, female character that we have up until this point. Um, and she gives me great hope for what the MCU is capable of. I want to make controversial statements yes. about best movies in various phases and mm -hmm. best women. Yes. But I'll wait until I have the evidence in front of the court. All right. But... <laughs> Any of you listening can probably put some pieces together here. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's, it's, uh, but Peggy, even then, Peggy's still pretty yeah. much top, top of the heap. I mean, Peggy, Peggy is top of the heap, even like through, you know, what we've got now. But as of the moment that this movie came out, I mean, she was, you know, without a doubt, beyond question, the best written, you yes. know, yes. female character that we've had you know, in the MCU today. And it's, you know, it's a challenge. You know, Marvel is like, I talk a lot in, you know, in my storytelling podcast about, um, about terroir, right? Which is when grapes are grown in particular land, they pick up the flavor of the soil in which they are planted. You know, so if there's lavender, if there's, you know, um, current, if there's anything in, in the ground, they'll pick it up and they'll bring it into the wine, right? And so when you have these stories that are written in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, the undercurrent, you know, cultural undercurrent that was in the soil at the time these stories are written is going to come through, mm -hmm. you know, when you're pulling from the source material into the now. Now, we would like for everybody who is doing that work to have the presence of mind to see all of those influences. But, you know, it's it's not entirely unlike Lucy and Ethel in the Chocolate Factory. There's so much coming at you. you know, some of it I can see how it would get missed. Some of those, you know, pieces of chocolate get dropped on the floor. And and I get that, like to a certain degree, like I get that. Um, but I think that more and more as we move through the MCU, and one of the things that I appreciate about the MCU is that it does seem as though the MCU is taking those criticisms very seriously and doing what they can to correct them as they move through. Now, sometimes we get a Jane Foster, you know, which is <laughs> which is not good. And and then we get a Peggy Carter. You know, where we have this character who in the original source material did not have this kind of agency, did not have, you know, this, this, uh, dare I say, equality to the male characters around her. Oh, good her. Lord, no. You know, um, but she is more than capable to go toe to toe with any of these men in this movie. And 
I appreciate that. I think it's fantastic. And so even though we have a certain amount of terroir that comes into a lot of these movies, and there are some movies when we get to it, we're going to absolutely have that discussion. Um, but, but this particular movie in this particular instance, I think as far as how it, it deals with women, although of course Peggy is the only woman, you know, that we see that has anything, you know, um, to recommend her at all. Um, but at least we've got that and she is so incredibly good and so powerful, um, that she makes up for, you know, for the lack of, of any other female character up until this point who has been, you know, as good or even a quarter as good. Now, yes. I feel like let's all say a small prayer <laughs> for the ladies of Black Panther because that actually looks like they're really going to take this Peggy Carter stuff to the next level. Honestly. Oh, man. I know. I hope so. I've got my fingers crossed. It's looking good. And let's light a candle that mm -hmm. Captain Marvel is Peggy Plus. Yes. I would love Let's to see that. Let's see this brought to the next level, you know? Um, and I'm hoping that, and I think that I, you know, I have a lot of respect for an institution that has been, you know, 60, 70, 80 years in the making in some characters, you know, um, that is, is really trying to make those differences. And it may be a rough tumble start, um, but the effort involved, I think, is, is commendable. And, you know, and and we can appreciate that. We can criticize what's been done at the same time while appreciating what they're making an effort to do. And pointing out yeah. when it doesn't work the way that we would like it to work. Sure. I mean, a, a loving criticism is, I think, how you get to appreciate the work and also say, guys, why is Peggy still the only Peggy? <laughs> Right. You know. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing, like loving criticism to love a piece of work or a series of, of works as we are with the MCU doesn't mean that you have to look at it without a critical eye and looking at it without a critical eye doesn't mean that you can't love it. You can do both of those things at once. You can give it loving criticism and say, these are the things where it's falling down, but here's where it's great. And let's appreciate what's great. Um, but while we're talking about societal issues, and, while we're and talking in the flavors of the soil in which things were grown right exactly i think that we really need to have a discussion and i mean you know let's pull back you know the 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 curtain a little bit here you know uh you and i like i'm basically agnostic religiously but of course was raised in a, in a christian environment you know quaker environment um you are a christian man right we don't have a jewish background either one of us um but i do feel that it is very important for us to talk about the things in this movie that are absolutely not spoken about. I think that sometimes yeah. what a story ignores is as important as what it actually does talk about. And we have a backdrop of World War II. We have a backdrop of Nazis. Um, and yet we don't deal with this Jewish genocide that was going on at that time at all. So we're going to talk about this a little bit. Um, we, I think both of us, I feel fairly safe in saying this, having had conversations with Joshua before we recorded, um, both of us feel a little bit out of our depth in this area that we, we may not have all of the information or context to talk about it really well, but we're going to talk about it to the best of our abilities and welcome perspectives and ideas and things that we may have missed 
you know, because we don't have that background. But I think that we really need to talk about Hydra and Nazis and the complete lack of any, any, I think, Jewish presence or discussion in this movie. Yeah, I think we are cognizant enough that we can recognize that there's probably an issue here, but we may yeah. not know how to address it well. Right. And for the Herein fear, I mean, lies the problem. <laughs> right. And the thing is, is that when it comes right down to it, for me, the choice is always this. Either I say nothing because I don't feel qualified to say anything and I let it slide or I say something, feel a little bit like an asshole um, and maybe not say it all as well as I would like to say it or with the complete contextual understanding that I would like to have, um, you know, and, and kind of fall short. And I'd rather talk about it and fall short than not talk about it at all, than pretend like it's not an issue. So we're going to talk about this. It is entirely possible we're going to fall short. We welcome, I mean, you have no idea how much we welcome the perspective of people who may have a deeper understanding of these issues than we do. Um, by all means, the hashtag is listen up a holes. Um, we would love to have this conversation with you. We would love to be educated in any way on anything that we miss or that we, we kind of fall short of discussing, but I'd rather discuss it imperfectly than pretend like it's okay. Yeah. I think we can say definitively, we're going to bring it up, but we're not going to put it to bed. Absolutely. Like that's, that's where the conversation happens. So (laughs) you are correct. Hydra is basically Nazis. Right. (laughs) You brought this up. It's a good point. Um, And we have maybe one Jewish character and it's maybe. And we don't know because Erskine kind of feels like he might be Jewish, but he also spoke about how Hitler came to him and we all know how Hitler felt about Jewish people. But then again, if a Jewish person could help Hitler get what he wanted, he would use a Jewish person to do that. And it's complicated. And we certainly cannot forget that Captain America was specifically a political statement yeah. by two Jewish creators mm-hmm. about the world that they were living in. And before America had gotten involved. Oh, we'd gotten involved on the Nazi side. <laughs> I mean, not in the war, but we had mm-hmm. a thriving American Nazi, if not full-blown party, sympathizers. <sighs> and yeah. the German Bun, and again, training camps in Long Island, and not just there. The vocal sympathies of Americans were, it's none of our business or yay Nazis. Oh, my God. And that's not a great look. That's no. not... a a wonderful tension mm-hmm. for us to be in um i mean at all but i mean right. especially now there is a lot of things to talk about how nobody knew everything that was going on over there until after the fact and and you know how there is a conversation to be had of how great is the american moral failing mm-hmm. there is a conversation to be had yeah. but it's there is one How Mm -hmm. deep is the failing is the question, not is there one or not. Right. And when we look back, the storytelling about World War II, you know, when we look back from the perspective of where we are now is always America went in, 
they knew, you know, they were anti-Nazi. Like we went in and we kicked their ass and we, you know, we won the war and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But I mean, it is, it is essentially much, much more complicated than that. And here we have, you know, two Jewish, you know, a Jewish writer, a Jewish artist, you know, at this time creating this character, this Aryan ideal that punched Hitler in the face, yeah, which was that, incredibly bold. Not subtle. Yeah. We don't I mean, do subtle that here. That was brave at that time. May 1941, that was fucking ballsy for these guys to do it, and they did it. Now, I think that your biggest concern for Captain America is that we deliteralize Nazis into Hydra. For this movie, yeah. Yeah. Where my, where my problem comes from in this is that we associate very clearly, you know, Hydra and the Nazis. In the beginning, Johann Schmidt is talking about the Fuhrer. The Fuhrer is funding him, mm -hmm. right, in mm -hmm. his pursuit. He gets the Tesseract, and then he's like, well, screw the Fuhrer, you know. Um, we have this moment later in the movie where he is actually killing Nazis, mm -hmm. where he is you know, betraying Hitler. He is, I'm bigger than Hitler. I'm better than Hitler. You know, I mean, he's, he's doing all that kind of talk. Um, and then he separates from Hitler. And at that point, we don't care about Nazis anymore. We care about Hydra. You we know? really only get the trappings of Nazism yes. because and the outfits separate. are still very right. SS, mm -hmm. you know, right. um, Lots of German accents, sure. lots of buzz bomb, you know, mm -hmm. tight planes. But all that is really Nazi set dressing without having to deal. Without having to deal with, with what the Nazis. Nazis were doing, with the genocide that the Nazis were perpetrating at that time. We have a Japanese character in one of the Howling Commandos. And by the way, I do appreciate our our nice level of, of diversity in the Howling Commandos that we have. It's a something, black man right? who yeah. speaks French, you know, communicating with our French guy who's, you know, part of the Howling Commandos. <laughs> and We've speaking got... German. That was Zundung. I didn't know you spoke German. Three semesters at Howard, switch to French, girls much cuter. And we've got, you know, of course, our, our you know, Japanese heritage guy. What are we taking, everybody? I'm from Fresno, Ace. And a nod towards the fact that Dugan is kind of quietly racist. Dugan is kind of quietly Are we taking everybody? racist I mean, with his lovely, you know, big mustache. Yeah, he's. <laughs> yeah, listen, the mustache is separate from the man. The mustache is <laughs> its own existence, its own thing. Um, but what we do, though, by we take Hydra, we sort of originate it and associate it with the Nazis, then we separate it out so that we can fight Red Skull, so we can fight Hydra without talking about what the Nazis are doing. And here we are, we have Captain America fighting Red Skull, who is actually taking power away from Hitler at this point because he was working for Hitler and then he was like, whatever, you know, screw all y'all, I'm going off on my own. Taking the Tesseract and that power and those weapons away from the Nazis into his own thing. And that's where I'm like, okay, so we have Captain America, who is this big World War II hero, right? Who is fighting... Red Skull, who is not somebody and not from an organization that we declared war on, 
that is not killing, you know, millions upon millions of Jewish people. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. a bad guy. I mean, nobody's going to say, you know, he's a great guy, but but he's also a personal villain, a super villain, as opposed to the guy that we are actually there as Americans, as British people, you know, to fight. So for me, I feel like this muddies up a lot of, of what we're talking about with World War II. I feel like we are, we are taking the World War II aesthetic and the World War II righteousness, you know, mm-hmm. without talking about these very, very dark things that were happening to Jewish people during that time. We don't have like a, an established you know, Jewish character even in this story. So I don't know, for me, it feels really uncomfortable. It feels we're not talking about the incredible human tragedy that was going on. And that was a huge part of what World War II was about. And I feel like that's a problem. I mean, what are your feelings on that? I sympathize greatly with every creative choice that was made in this area. Like I get it, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they have a world building issue. I mean, I'm going to kind of hit my, this is my, uh, my devil's advocate, even though I, I basically think that there is a big problem in this. Yeah. I don't know how to address it, but I also understand how they got here. I'll say, right. Mm -hmm. Like they have Mm -hmm. a world building thing where they have a modern MCU that forgot about Captain America. Yeah. And so it's like, well, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is because he's a gimmick and then he fights a secret war, mm-hmm. hey, right? Sure, sure. There's also that making Nazis into comic book villains made a ton of sense in the 60s, which because they're still being written by the same guys that wrote the Captain America comics. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's when Hydra shows up, right? Mm-hmm. Captain America is punching Nazis in the 40s. He's punching Hydra in the 60s, and partly that's because these guys who fought in World War II did not want to undermine the victory. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the Nazi ideology and some of the biggest villains survived into the present at the time, Mm -hmm. but that they didn't steal anything from America's victory. That was that was some of the thought process that went into Hydra being created for the MCU sure. or for, for in, the Marvel in universe. In that context, say. though, we're 20 years out. Right. You know, so we have to say the Nazis didn't win. So we create Hydra so that we can still fight Nazis, but not give them a win, not give them any power. And like in that context, I completely understand Hydra. Yeah, in a contemporary <laughs> context, in a concurrent with the Nazis context, it feels like we're trying not to address the very real, very human tragedy that was going on at that time without having even so much as a Jewish character in this story. There's something else to this. I want to bring yeah. up a, a Jewish comic book reader I know uh-huh. has spoken to me about how at this point, making Nazis into broad cartoonish villains. Uh-huh. Is not doing us any favors. Yeah. Again, the the difference between 1965 and now, mm-hmm. you know, that, listen, things weren't perfect in the 60s. <laughs> 
by any stretch, yeah. but you didn't have any kind of Nazi sympathizing. Mm-hmm. It was too soon. Right. You know, that was so again, it kind of made made some sense to make them these comic book villains to remind, hey, kids, <laughs> they still suck. You right. Know? But mm-hmm. now we have decades of that. Mm-hmm. And she felt like that undermined some of the threat of actual Nazis. Right. And I have mm-hmm. to tell you, having sat through 2017, mm-hmm. there's a real point there. Well, and with that right. in mind, that mm-hmm. is as close to a mitigating factor for this Nazis, but not really of the movies Hydra, mm-hmm. is that at least we're not throwing more wood on that fire. And that, yeah. that's why I feel like I can bring this up, but I can't put it to bed. Because here are two things that I can see. You can't do both, right? right? Mm-hmm. We can't both stop turning Nazis into supervillains mm-hmm. and talk about what Nazis were actually doing in terms of Captain America. So right. we, what's the priority? And I'm not saying that we should just grab any random Jewish person and ask them, because that's mm-hmm. not how this works. Right. But I know I'm sort of not qualified to, I just want to listen to that conversation. Exactly. Like, that's what I want. I want people who have like a greater understanding. What I think bothers me though, is that we, we hold up Nazis as this very bad thing. You know, like they're just bad. Like Nazis are always kind of an easy villain. Like let's not yes, forget totally. Indiana Jones. Right. And we have something similar you know, in this movie as Indiana Jones, like in this movie, Cap doesn't actually defeat Red Skull. Red Skull's desire for power, he grabs the Tesseract and the Tesseract destroys him, right? And that's what mm-hmm. we have with the Nazis in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It's a you pretty know, good all, metaphor. All Indiana Jones does is say, close your eyes, right? And then these guys take themselves down with their greed for power. And, you know, and there is that. But what we do, I think, so often is we talk about Nazis as as really super bad guys, but we don't address anti-Semitism. Yeah, we don't address yes. because the thing is that we hate Nazis. We've always hated Nazis, but anti-Semitism, I'm sorry, has been a huge problem and continues to be a huge problem, was a huge problem in the 40s. You know, even <laughs> Honestly, while, it's 5000 years and going. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's it's horrifying. We separate. We talk about how bad the Nazis are without talking about how bad anti-Semitism is, how wrong anti-Semitism is, while we live in a country and a culture that actually still promotes actively anti-Semitism. I will tell you that historically, Mm -hmm. there's the reason that we have not dealt collectively, like as a culture or as a, you know, dealing with our history with the the reasons Nazis are bad at at an ideological level is that we had way too much overlap with them at the time eugenics we were huge into eugenics here so much anti-semitism in american culture has always been will always oh well no not will always be let's hope let's hope not Um, let's i'm not gonna say that dark again you know i would like to believe that we will get better about it but what really bothers me is that we don't talk about anti-semitism we don't talk about it. We talk about Nazis and how bad they are, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And yet we have, of course, Nazis who are emboldened by our current political climate. And, and that anti-Semitism, which is so much at the heart of that, we don't talk about that because we have it. Because it is so much, you know, kind of... You got to deal with it right now. In, right. Folded into our culture. Or when we do deal with it, when we do deal with it, we put it in jackboots and epaulets instead yeah. of 
khakis and a tiki torch. Right. Instead like, of acknowledging that anti-Semitism is in everyday American culture, you know? And, and so, and I think that's why I feel like so unqualified to talk about this. Yes. And yet yes. I see it, you know, I, I love that we have, you know, at the heart of all of these Marvel stories, right? We have all of these Jewish creators Jewish, and this is the thing, like the people telling our stories, we need diversity in the people telling our mm -hmm. stories so that they can tell their stories. And we have these Jewish creators at the heart of, of these stories. And I feel like in Captain America, like I understand the narrative, you know, impulse to pull away from that to not talk about it because it is so heavy and dealing with it appropriately would have made this movie different, you know, but maybe this movie needed to be different. I want to, I want to have a genre thing that I actually think is important. Yeah. But well, because, but, but I think I would undermine that statement. And at this point, I don't want to, but no, I, it's okay. Like what, what is it about the genre? Okay. This is actually part of that holding these two ideas in tension and figuring out a way in between them. Because superheroes are maybe not the best avenue mm -hmm. to deal with actual anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. They work in metaphor. They right. work in broad strokes. Mm -hmm. They are, at their heart, literature for children. Sure. Now, we can talk about children at different ages and mm -hmm. dealing with things. And it's not for nothing that the Nazi stand-ins were introduced at the, the company that was doing young adult superheroes as opposed mm -hmm. to kids superheroes, right? Like, th there are ways and ways. But there's a point where if you throw this ridiculous concept that only works in broad strokes mm -hmm. up against a real-world thing, mm -hmm. it sort of cheapens both of them. Yeah. Now, that is not to say don't try. I am not actually defending any of the final choices with Captain America. This is just as a superhero guy, an mm -hmm. issue that I have run into both reading and making up superhero stories where I'm like, man, maybe yeah. a guy in an outfit can't punch racism. <laughs> you know, right. you have to literalize it, right? Right. Into something that can be punched. And mm -hmm. I don't know. There's ways and ways and ways. And, and again, you know what this probably does is me. I'm defending some genre choices because, you, like I say, that cheapening of both of them where you make both this very serious thing ridiculous mm -hmm. and this very powerful story too ridiculous. Right. You know, is a problem. But it's like, that's why you let's diversify that writer's room. <laughs> sure. Let's no, let, absolutely. Yeah. This is so, why we need representation in, in all writer's rooms and the people who are telling the stories. But it is, you know. It is really difficult. I think that I could have done, you know, I could have really enjoyed some Jewish characters in this story. Yeah. Some Jewish heroism in this story. Um, I, I think that that could have gone a long way toward at least addressing a little bit what was going on. If Bucky had been Jewish. <laughs> you oh, know, if how easy is been, that? Right. Like if we could have done something to to personalize that that kind of broader anti-Semitism and to bring Man. that into a place, you know? Yeah, something. I mean, Bucky Bucky could 
I don't want to say is like the the silver bullet because there's a lot of things to think about, but that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Like it could have done something, you know. If to, Steve is yeah. going overseas to defend America, and also by the way, his best friend his and his best friend's best family, friend. yeah, and his best friend who's out there fighting, you know. Mm, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. Like to to for a Jewish man to go over to this place and fight that fight, like that's powerful. You know, and I don't know. So anyway, like there were things they could have done without sacrificing the genre, without necessarily overpowering the story with with too much reality, because obviously we go to these superhero stories for the the metaphor, you know, that gives Mm -hmm. us access to reality as opposed to the actual reality reality. But there are things that we could have done to have that that discussion I think to address those issues, at least acknowledge them, you know, so it's it's a tough discussion. And I got to say, I invite, you know, oh, yeah, we want to hear it. and thoughts from people who understand this more than I do and better than I do and more deeply and more personally than I do. Um, but I think that it's it's a problem with this movie as much as I like this movie and I do like on a pure narrative you know, like perspective. I think this movie is a great movie. I think that it, it fails to address some things that it really needed to address. Yes. It does not detract from the movie as Mm -hmm. a piece. As a story. But it does feel like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Well, and it feels like when you don't address it, you say it's not important. You're still addressing it. When you don't address it, you erase the people yes you know what i'm saying like you when you when you fail to talk about something you erase people and i think that these people who have been dealing with these kind of very culturally accepted you know um undertones and not even undertones but just like real anti-semitism in our culture to not challenge that to not take the opportunity to challenge that I think is is a problem and I would like to see us do better with that in the future because we talk a lot about racism we've got Black Panther we've got you know we've got female led stories you know we've got so much stuff happening for women and for you know for other minorities we don't address anti-semitism we don't talk about it we don't condemn it and we need to you know, in, in every opportunity, even if you don't do it a hundred percent, at least do it a little. So I, I feel like I love this movie so much. I think it's such a great movie. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm sad about this movie because it doesn't do that. So we definitely invite you listeners into that conversation, especially those of you who might be able to speak more directly to the Jewish experience. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But now we're going to try and end on a happy note. <laughs> With our favorite parts. Lonnie, tell me about your favorite part. I have to say, there's so much I love in this movie. And I've talked about a lot of it. I've talked about the three beats. Of course, you know, the way to my heart is through a three beat. Um, you know, we've got a few of these in here. But what I loved, I loved that moment where they're in boot camp and this guy is mouthing off to Peggy and she just full on punches him in the face. Must be the accent, Queen Victoria. Thought I was signing up for the US Army. What's your name, soldier? Gilmore Hodge, your majesty. Step forward, Hodge. 
Put your right foot forward. Hmm, you get a rasa? Because I got a few moves I know you'll like. I love that moment. I think that that is fantastic. It sets us up like it's early on enough that we get a sense of who Peggy is and that she is taking no shit. And I love that. It's like, oh, well, I didn't expect to come to this Captain America movie and fall in love with you, Haley Atwell, and Chris Evans. Exactly. But I I'm did. in a very weird space right now. <laughs> Haley Atwell is amazing. And she punches him full on in the face. She is every bit his equal and knocks him flat. I absolutely love that moment. So what about you? What's your favorite part? My favorite part was Steve telling Erskine, yeah. I don't want to kill anyone. I just don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. Oh, yeah. This is huge. It's not just huge for Steve, although we've discussed like how mm -hmm. his goodness is there throughout. Yeah. But it was a very real statement to me as longtime superhero fan mm -hmm. that they got this guy. Yeah. And that they might kind of get the genre, you know, because so much of this power fantasy of superheroes that has just honestly been perverted through a whole bunch of comic book history, nerd mm -hmm. history, mm -hmm. started out as people who didn't have the power telling stories about what they would be like if they did. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, but that is so easy to like step off the edge of into revenge or something like that. And so that the idea is like, I don't want this. I just don't put up with this. Mm -hmm. I was like, you guys get it. I have tears in my eyes. Let's go punch Hydra. Oh, it's you know? so fantastic. So, yeah. I love that moment. And not for nothing, that line will literally define every Captain America appearance in the MCU from there until I what we've seen right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Thanks so much for joining us for this very special episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. <laughs> We will be back next time with our discussion of 2012's The Avengers. Oh my God, I'm so looking forward to that. It's so great. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you, which makes you our heroes. So show your support by visiting our Patreon pages, or if you can't support us financially, leave us a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for other people to find us and join in this conversation. Yes, the links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Until next time, we're following the little guy from Brooklyn who was too dumb not to walk away from a fight. <laughs> <laughs>